Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. In the spirit of ANU's motto, which is, first to know the nature of things, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and waterways which were never ceded. We pay our respects to their elders past and present and extend our respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples listening today. I asked the Prime Minister, how good is Australia? Please explain. I'm here to make a public statement. Look, I'm going to uh, shirt from Mr I am a fighter and not a fighter. I don't think I know and I want to thank uh, that fellow down under. Oh, fair shake of the sauce bottle, mate. G'day and welcome to Democracy Sausage from the Australian National University. I'm Mark Kinney from the ANU's Australian Studies Institute and the School of Politics and International Relations, where my co-host, Dr Maria Teflaga, a political scientist and senior lecturer there at the School of Politics and International Relations, is with me as well. Hi there, Maria. Hello, Mark. Hi, everyone. Yeah, it's good to talk. Uh, we're just speaking after Easter. We wanted to talk today about the changing nature of the electorate uh, this week and specifically the implications for the Liberal Party. It's the most successful party of government since the Second World War, but also now the only party to have handed a seat to a sitting government in more than 100 years. Around the country, it is out of office and to a large extent it seems out of step. It clings on in Tasmania, of course, but even there its federal leadership is at odds with the uh, with prominent Liberals in that state, including the former and current Premier, and, and also one of its most outspoken federal members, Bridget Archer in Bass, uh, who seems to uh, you know, have some very serious differences with the leadership. So... What we want to talk about really, what we want to look into is, is this just a sort of a cyclical nadir that you know happens and, and, and gradually corrects itself, or is this something structural? Cos Samaras is a director of Redbridge Social Research Company, a former Labor Party official from Victoria. You will have seen him on election coverage on the ABC, uh, often with Tony Barry, Barry who's um, uh, a Liberal Party-aligned uh, social researcher as well. Uh, and they've spoken very clearly and I think persuasively about what's happening within the electorate and what the Liberal Party's doing and how it's relating. And and they see some uh, some very big challenges for the Liberal Party. Cos is with us at the moment. Cos, welcome to Democracy Sausage. G'day. Really good to have you on. Uh, I wonder if we could start broad and just get you to kind of outline, as you see it, the the problem. Uh, Christopher Pine, not so long ago when he was in Parliament, used to happily describe the Liberal Party as an election-winning machine. It doesn't feel like... It's an election-winning machine at the moment, and and what I understand you and Tony to be saying is that its um its problems are much deeper than you know than just being out of fashion with mm. with the zeitgeist right at the moment. Yeah, that's right. I mean, if it's if it was it, it was definitely an election-winning machine, and you touched on their success since the Second World War, in particular at a federal level. However. You know, if we use the, the analogy of a machine, they're, they're really eff uh, efficient fuel that they've been using to win those elections have been baby boomers and older Australians. And we do know through not just our research, but uh, a lot of the sort of post-election analysis that have, that have been compiled 
the, the coalition now secures around 55% of those individuals. In other words, it is their main, you know, electoral Praetorian guard. It then drops off a cliff. And this is where they're getting into trouble and where I think this is not a cyclical problem, but an intergenerational demographic problem they're facing. Yeah, I've seen it described as their problem is, <laughs> I always like this when I read this, you know, uh, quite interesting. Uh, the problem is with professionals, young people, women, migrants in diverse communities, millennials. It, it, it pretty much sweeps up, uh, you know, most of the electorate. Yeah, most people living in our large capital cities in particular, and they've, They've missed this this emergence of not just the millennials and Generation Z, that is people under the age of forty, um, moving on, on onto the onto the sort of electoral landscape by rolling to vote. Um, they have also done a pretty poor job at appealing, connecting with two of the fastest growing uh, diverse communities in this country, which are uh, Chinese Australian and Indian Australians, and that's a you know, I think their their relationship with the Chinese Australian community, in particular, has is now beginning to cost them significant uh, uh, number of seats in in Sydney and Melbourne. And then, of course, the third component to that is the, yeah the fastest growing workforce workforce type, which is usually uh, tertiary educated women, in particular, uh, working in health sector and services and so on, the public sector. They uh, have done a fairly poor job at talking to that constituency as well, which is effective with the new middle class uh, in our large capital cities. Yeah, it was interesting that that was a kind of a, um, a bit of a feature of the recent New South Wales election, the role of professional women, uh, which which includes, of course, nurses and uh, caregivers in a number of mm. uh, number of areas. And I understand you've you've looked at that in in your research also because when the previous liberal government was talking about efficiencies and and so forth this was read by large swathes of people significant numbers of nurses and others working in in the health and care sector uh, as being um, a message that they were going to have their wages frozen yeah that's right and you know the the new south wales uh the former New South Wales coalition government embarked on a, 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 I would say, an engagement with that 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 part of the community that was going to cost them, and we saw that at the, at the recent state election. Most of the seats they lost to the Labor Party or had very significant swings against have a disproportionate number of these types of workers living in them. And I say this to people all the time that this again they're, they're middle class that they're, they're not on huge you know um, incomes. Um, They've got a progressive tinge to them, uh, and they live in marginal seats, particularly in our large capital cities. And uh, um, alienating them um, is not exactly the best approach to uh, remedying some of these problems the Liberal Party is facing in our large cities. Cos, um, I'm kind of interested to know mm. whether or not these voters are, are sort of old Liberal Party voters that have switched or if they're basically failing to convert into coalition voters as they mm. they age and acquire assets or don't acquire them. Yeah, that's right. So the, 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 the evidence to date suggests that they never were Liberal voters. So I know sometimes some Liberal commentators or politicians would say within, um, through the media that, oh, we need to find a way to reconnect with them. Uh, my argument is they've never been connected with them. 
And we do know that. So there's work that the ANU has done and uh, other organisations, including ourselves, as in assessing our surveys over a long period of time. Millennials are not getting any more conservative as they get older. Uh, the coalition gets about one in five of those voters across the country. It it's a lot lower in our capital cities and it's uh, demonstrably lower in, this, in cities like Melbourne and, and Adelaide. So, uh, and then it, the problem is compounded by Gen Z, which is that younger cohort between 18 and 24 years of age. In Melbourne, it's down to below 10% support for the coalition. And again, if they follow the millennial pattern, and don't become more conservative as they get older, then um, that's going to be a severe problem. Back to your point, what's what's keeping them progressive or left 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 to centre voters? It's an open book. That one, you know, it could be that they are the first generation that's grown up with, uh, you know, information at, at, at their fingertips. Uh, whether it's lack of uh, an ability to um, uh, own property. Whether they are because they are disproportionately represented in our renter cohort, and, and you know this this country's property market has not been kind to them. Um, so I think there's a number of factors at play here, not just one. Yeah, it's really fascinating that 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 whole question, isn't it? Because it is premised on this idea that uh, on on the evidence, as you say, you you, you uh, uncover that these groups, millennials, are not becoming more conservative as they get older, and that's that's been a kind of an assumed trajectory in in our politics for many generations, and. I suppose it begs the question: Why is that the case, or why was that the case? The explanation is often given that people, as they acquire property, acquire interests, have things to protect. They 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 develop a more proprietorial uh, sense around uh, around. Uh, their understanding of what government should be prioritizing around you know policy and philosophy and so forth because they own property they own wealth uh, they have they have uh, you know as it were skin in the game whereas millennials as as you were just touching on then cause in many cases aren't acquiring that wealth in that same pattern as was the case for their parents and the generation before that yeah that's right and it's it extends beyond just their ability to access the property market. I think it, it also touches on practically everything that they have to they've had to experience as adults. That is very different, starkly different to baby boomers, for example. So they've had, you know, they're probably the first generation since the Second World War to experience a, a decline in, I wouldn't say living standards because they're relatively okay comparatively speaking to the rest of the world, but. When you compare them, compare the last lifestyles of millennials um, to to baby boomers, it's drastically different. You know, even to the point where they are now spending more of their incomes taking care of older Australians, for example. Mm. You know, uh, so they're paying a, a, a larger price in, in in our society than than uh, generations that come before them, and I think they're they're acutely aware of that. Maria, well, it's an interesting product of, I guess, the sort of demographic shifts that have occurred, you know, and some of the attendant problems that have come along with the the ability of, of humans to actually live longer and longer, which, you know, is a great success of, of our human societies. But our political institutions perhaps are sort of struggling to, I suppose, bolster future thinking. If you think about it in the past, the way we used to do this is simply through attrition, right? People, people just simply died. And that is no longer the case. And, and as I said, that's a good thing. That's a really 
big success in our society, but it is one of the things that will only become more complicated as we as we increasingly age because there's a whole series of expectations around the social safety net that was sort of established at a time when people didn't expect people to simply live this long. And that's sort of the, the conversation that drives that intergenerational report, right, those reports. But there's a real disconnect, I suppose, between needing to provide dignity and and good life experiences and for everyone to be included, but also to have the political system be responsive enough to the needs of future generations, rather than the interests of those living just now, given the kinds of existential problems that we face in relation to the climate, and also more materialistic concerns that we face right now, like feeding and clothing people properly. Uh, Maria, I'm really interested in this, though, because uh, you make excellent points there, and and it makes me think about this generation, millennials in particular, um, and, and, and the generations since that are the first generations that have grown up in this kind of neoliberal consensus where everything has, you know so much so many things have been privatized much has been about markets uh, they've come out of university if they've been lucky enough to go to university carrying significant debts uh, the the um uh, wealth of the generation ahead of them the baby boomers has been um uh, you know consolidating uh, through that period uh, with you know multiple properties and the like in many cases you know strong superannuation and everything else and so there's a real talk about disconnect there's a disconnect between the values that are being spruiked as essentially the benefits of this neoliberal revolution that's occurred really since the kind of mid 80s onwards and um uh, and and their actual expectations of getting a piece of it yeah i think i think there is a dimension to that i mean I, what i would sort of say is I think it's actually kind of important to kind of recognise that baby boomers and to some degree Gen Xers grew up in a really unique time in human history. You know, we had these two cataclysmic catastrophes where we basically eliminated 60 million people from the earth uh, in catastrophic wars. And these were big enough shocks that people thought, you know what, maybe we should organise society a bit differently. Mm. Ergo, the welfare state, and baby boomers were a huge beneficiary of that, and and their children, um, in in large cases, um, um, Gen Xs, and you know there are all kinds of problems to some degree with with the welfare state. I'm not going to go into a big lecture about that, um, you know, but not everything worked, and so we had this neoliberal uh, sort of revolution, which I guess kind of returned us to a sort of more typical mean, at least reflecting industrial societies, right? Like if we think about pre-industrial societies, they were much more communitarian and had like different kinds of kinship networks and different kinds of expectations around what people owed to each other. And I think that's sort of what we're hitting now. And and I think it's a big complex phenomena if you think about it, right? Like it's it's not just that, you know, neoliberalism has produced a whole bunch of, just for example, stakes, terrible privatizations which have essentially privatized monopolies that used to be government monopolies, or conclusively proven that it's really difficult to run a for profit care sector in a way that actually cares adequately for people, right? So it's a lot of policy failures. Yes, um, there are a few. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and, and so it's, but it's also, frankly, like 
you know, the behavioral economics revolution, the, uh, you know, revolutions in how we understand how the human brain works, like ideologies, which sort of say, you know, the, like liberalism, for example, individuals are, are, are irrational, um, or rather that, that, you know, they'll, they, the people are, like competition and and competition will solve all of our problems right or people are inherently good or inherently bad or whatever if i if i do this if i give this stimulus the average person will react in this way that's just not how our brains work people are actually a bit messier than that the way that they think about their incentives is much more complicated um, than a simple cost-benefit analysis like a computer. People don't always want to inherently cooperate. It's kind of complicated as to why they will cooperate in certain situations and why they won't. And policy has to reflect that. That's kind of why some of the some aspects of the welfare state didn't work, right? Because it didn't actually reflect what people are doing. And so there's a new opportunity in a new century for governments to kind of imagine what a new state looks like, what the good life looks like, particularly when chat GTP and robots are coming for all of our jobs, most basically. So, you know, what is all of this kind of going to look like? And the Liberal Party is dominated by the Federal Liberal Party, that is, by, you know, more conservative people who, who whose mindset is not really attuned to this. And Gen Y and I, I imagine to a degree Gen X and Gen Z kind of know that that framework actually doesn't work. But no one really knows what the future really does look like. I think that's, what we can that's say, basically the problem. Yeah, and what we can say though is that it involves change and conservative parties that exist to to you know put sand in the gears of change that exist to essentially resist change except in increments and where absolutely necessary, may find themselves uh, ill-suited to that. I think we'll address that in just a moment. We'll come back and, and consider where the Liberal Party, how it positions itself in this changing world. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, I'm Sharon Bessel. Policy Forum Pod is the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. Each week we bring together expert analysis to tackle the big issues facing our region and to propose policy solutions. It's insightful, it's positive and it's always fun. Policy Forum Pod is out every Friday. You can find it on iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your pods. Or find us at policyforum.net slash podcasts. Welcome back to Democracy Sausage. I'm talking with Cos Samaris and, of course, with Maria Teflaga. Uh, we were, you were talking, Maria, just before about uh, the, the, the changing world that the Liberal Party finds itself in now and the, you know whether, in fact, it's got a grip on that. Your thoughts on that, Cos? Yeah, absolutely. Um, the, the, the period between the Second World War and I would say the, the, up until the turn of this century has, was a, an aberration, not the norm. Mm, but we and thought it was the norm, didn't we? We right, just sort right. of—it's one of yeah. those vanities that we always think we've arrived at the at the at the kind of 
fulcrum, the the, the yeah. final form of, of organisation. In fact, there were even statements around that, you know, the end of history and all that. Yeah, that's right. And as, as that world slips away uh, and has been slipping away, the, the uh, you know, millennials and Gen Z, that generation, is, uh, the impact that, it, that I would say that change is having on that generation, I think is as profound as the Industrial Revolution. And so we should look at yeah. look at that through that prism because that's going to have a that's having and we know with it when the industrial revolution came along, the political upheaval and the impact on existing political parties was was monstrous, and I think that's what we're seeing here. Yeah, it's really a really fascinating point because I remember Lindsay Tanner, former Victorian federal liberal uh, federal Labor member of Parliament. Um, Minister, of course, finance minister in the Rudd government, uh, and something of a thinker, and uh, published a number of books and in, in his uh, time. And I remember he used to make this point about you know the, the changing nature of the workforce and the way Labor, the Labor Party, was organised basically out of trade unions, and that, that that reflected the industrial structure of the economy. Workers all living relatively close in the shadow of the industries in which they worked, um, aggregated together uh, physically in. Um, in workplaces in large numbers, this was very favourable to organising labour unions and representing their their interests and so forth. And yet, and so you would have thought with the washing away of all of that, with jobs going overseas, with production changing, with the economy becoming much more focused on information and services than on manufacturing, you would have thought it would have been the Labour Party that would struggle with this. And mm. I think we've seen quite a deal of, 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 of difficulty in making the adjustments for the Labour Party. But what we're talking about now and what we're seeing through that recent by-election and through a number of state elections and, and through the social attitudes that, that you at Redbridge and others are, are, are finding is that there is, a, there is a new politic, a new consensus almost uh, in, in the population, in the electorate, that the Liberal Party, that the Conservatives find themselves sort of structurally out of step with. They talk about values. They talk about sticking with policies that they believe in. They, they you know, understandably at some level laud the, the, the value of, um, of having convictions. Yet the problem for them is the maths don't work. The, the, the convictions they are having are not the ones shared by a majority of the population, as you were just saying, Cos. Yeah, that's right. I mean, they are a political movement that, that was perfectly adjusted to that, or their second, world, their post Second World War period, where you know that those values that they talk about today were very relevant to the nineteen fifties and sixties and seventies and eighties and so on, but this this emerging generation, and you know, and they are at the moment around forty percent of the voters' roll. By two twenty five, in some states, they'll be closer to fifty. They view the world very differently, and they have. A different set of values, and I would say they are more globalist. Mm. Um, they are of the view that politics in general doesn't really fix all their problems. But look, having said all that, the, the, the big thing here is that what we've been talking about is the emergence of a new working class. So, you know, you know you're talking about before the Labor Party had to adjust it kind of like stumbled into it. So I, I recall back when I was actually a Labor Party official and we just lost the, the, the 2019 federal election and there was a group of us having a conversation around, okay, so what is really the pathway? Because clearly these coal electorates are not going to be a good hunting ground for the left side of politics going forward. And 
there was a couple of things that we trialed trial back in 2019. One of them was going after the seat of Higgins. And right. at the this time- is, This is uh, Peter Costello's old yes. seat in uh, Victoria, suburban yeah. Melbourne. Yeah. That's right. That was becoming what I will define as a globalist electorate. So it's got all those de- demographic traits that we've been talking about in very big numbers, high numbers of renters. It's turning into a, a quintessential um, electorate or you know, capturing suburbs that are atypical of a global city, you know, a Western global mm. city. And we got Labor got pretty close and we thought, okay, that's, that's an interesting pathway. This was uh, Labor got close in 2019, you mean? Yeah. Yes. Where it had swings against it, it had swings to it in seats like Higgins. Right. Right. And of course, and so picked it up in 2022. Picked it up. Yeah. That's right. And so it, it, it's, it's these types of voters that are now gravitating to the left side of politics. They are voting Green, they're voting Labor, they're voting Teal, and they are in huge numbers in all the sort of, I would say, inner to middle urban parts of our capital cities. And we saw the the manifestation of that even in Brisbane, where the Greens picked up three seats yeah. for the last federal election. Yeah. Maria, you talked about you know attrition, uh, people living longer, how attrition used to work, but there's an attrition here for the Liberal Party base as well, isn't there, in the other direction, which is to say that its traditional voters are getting older and older. It's, you know, the, 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 the locus of its support is ageing. Yeah, I mean, look, that's actually a problem that the party has been aware for of for at least 15, 20 years. Part of, part of it goes with the territory of being a conservative party. You know, yeah. naturally your voting base is going to be older. The, I, the problem, the problem for the, the coalition right now is they're not necessarily seeing the requisite conversion of voters. Idealistic young people who then get mortgages and have children and decide what is really important in life, which is materialistic concerns and looking after their kids through their inheritance and so on and so forth. And so there's a few things that I think are kind of important to think about here. One is like the Liberal Party is in a lot of trouble federally right now in large part because it's sort of become a regional party. It's it's pretty much dominated by the LNP and it sort of reflects the politics of a sort of more conservative regional Australia, mineral resource kinds of economies. Like that's sort of the dominant grouping in the in the Liberal Party right yeah, now. Yeah, just, just for clarification, the LNP, the Liberal National Party, is, is, is the combined two parties in Queensland. So in all the other states, you've got the, the, the National Party and the Liberal Party as separate entities. In Queensland, uh, Australia's most decentralised state, uh, we have those parties operating, uh, presenting to the electorate as one party, which they call the Liberal yeah. National Party, LNP. That's right. And, and I guess the other important thing to know about it is it's the only place in Australia where the National Party is actually the dominant party. Yes, Right? In everywhere else, the Liberal Party is the dominant member of that coalition. And the other thing that's interesting is that the LNP has basically really only managed to win one election since the mid-90s in Queensland at the state level. So, And, and part of that is to do with the fact that states provide services and so on. But yeah. the point of it is this, is that like the Liberal Party is an established political party with a national brand and national infrastructure, even if it is decaying and in... Um, you know, it's got all kinds of problems, particularly related to what we call entryism, which is branch stacking, right, in, in essence. Yeah. Um, branch stacking, which is occurring amongst 
groups that traditionally were not recruited to join the Liberal Party. So um, sort of like religious evangelical groups, um, specific types of migrant cohorts. You know, the Liberal Party didn't really do ethnic branch stacking um, for for good sort of Protestant Anglo-Saxon reasons, um, even though it's been tried a few times, right? It just never really worked. Um, um, but that 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 is shaping shaping and shifting the balance of that of that political party, right? And and parties are essentially made up of people. People are adaptive. So it's it's nothing is stopping the Liberal Party from changing, except the people that are in it who may may be very happy with the direction that it's in. But Cos is right. You know, millennials see the view the world differently, and a lot of them might vote teal because they actually want to hold on to their money. They don't necessarily believe in a redistributive welfare state, um, but they are concerned about the environment. And the other thing that we sort of haven't really discussed is, you know, inheritance. There's this big pool of money in the hands of of baby boomers, you know, baby boomers who've done really well in life. That money is going to go somewhere and that will, that will actually impact voting behavior. So you might not be able to necessarily accumulate wealth in the same kind of way, but you might inherit it or your parents might help you buy a house. And so my this is my way of saying that centre-right vision, which has always been important in any polity, that's still there. It's just not being channeled through a party as efficiently as it used to be. And so whether or not the Liberal Party recaptures that group of voters in some ways, it doesn't matter. Something will capture that group of voters. That group of voters aren't going to turn into Greens voters overnight. But the problem, it seems to me, I mean, that, that's that's quite possible and maybe that is the longer-term trajectory of things, but that's going to take a little while to turn around if that does manifest. Definitely. And in the meantime, they've, they're losing moderates. They're sort of bleeding moderate voters and they're bleeding moderate representatives as well. There are real tensions now within the Liberal Party. And there are, I think, some some pretty pretty fundamental considerations going on. Things being considered: should the Liberals, for example, split with the Nats and only form coalitions as and when they actually are capable of putting together between them a majority to form a government, and outside of that, to be completely separate from them. The Nats, for example, are more interested, as Bob McMullen and others have pointed out, are more interested in in sort of defending their seats than they are in helping the Libs with, uh, you know, winning urban it seats. It was ever thus. Yeah, that's right. And, and they've done pretty well at defending their seats, and we saw their absolutely uh, prejudicial position on The Voice yes. announced in November of last year, which had nothing to do with helping the Liberals and had everything to do with helping David Littleproud uh, hold on to the leadership uh, of a very conservative party that couldn't give a fig for cosmopolitan opinion. But the the voice in, is interesting, isn't it, uh, Cos, because, you know, there's a number of ways in which the Libs could have made made concessions to the reality that has been delivered to them by voters in Aston uh, and in the, the, the last election and in state elections, uh, they didn't have to give away everything. They just had to recognise that certain certain sentiments are now widely held and, and, and certain debates have been lost, uh, particularly, I think, the environment question. You know, they could have easily agreed to negotiate on the on the uh, safeguards mechanism. It was their mechanism after all. They could have just been the, the party in there negotiating and, and, and getting a better deal for industry if they thought that was necessary, but they didn't. Um, and they, of course, have now announced this, this you know, 
trenchant opposition to The Voice. It's, they're just on the wrong side of mainstream opinion and they've been there for some time and it's getting worse. It goes to the point that both of you were making around the, the nature of whom now makes up their caucus. So you made um, you both were talking about how efficient the National Party have, be- have become at protecting their seats. The problem for the Liberal Party is most of their seats also are now outside of large capital cities. Yeah. So they only have 14 of the 79 truly urban electorates in this country, urban electorates in capital cities. And, you know, you look at Queensland, for example, LNP is a powerhouse within that federal caucus, but only three of those seats are in Brisbane. Exactly. Right? And, and that's a problem. Interestingly, apparently Julian Lisa has just resigned from cabinet. So from the shadow cabinet, see, yeah. From the shadow cabinet, yes. My apologies, which sort of reflects that this is this is reverberating through through the party, uh, you know, as as we kind of speak. I mean, well, he's been put into an impossible position, really. I mean, he's been involved in the process of um, uh, advising and and uh, consulting with uh, First Nations people with those committees. Uh, he's um, he, he under, he's, he's been a supporter of The Voice for a long time and there have been stories that have come out over the weekend that the briefing note that uh, um, or the talking points that Peter Dutton and Susan Lee had when they fronted the media midway through last week to say they were against The Voice had actually uh, on the, uh, on the, on the um, talking points that they supported the National Voice um, uh, it, rather than the, the local ones that he came out and said that they would support. So they're all over the place on this, but they've, 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 I mean, they're playing politics with something that's far bigger than, than um, they have a right to do. In my the, view. the problem they face is um, we go back to that inheritance of wealth that will occur, particularly for a, a group of millennials. There's evidence that we, now, we, that, that we have in abundance, particularly from the US, where you know, there are now large constituencies in large US cities that have significant amounts of wealth that vote progressive. Um, mm. And so more of this uh, uh, behaviour is just going to absolutely nail down these voters uh, um, in, on the left side of politics for a very, very long time. Maria, how much do you think that their problem is that they are sort of trapped in the in the kind of you know romantic vortex of of the Howard years? They keep wheeling John Howard out. They did it in the New South Wales election. They've they've done it recently in relation to the Voice to defend Peter Dutton and and others. Um, the Howard era is a long time ago, and it was conservative then. Well, I think what we kind of forget about John Howard was that he famously declared himself the most conservative leader that the Liberal Party had ever had. And that's true. He, he was, to date, uh, at that time, the most conservative leader that that party had ever had. He was a harbinger of a new kind of era. And most of the people in politics now were, were sort of socialised and uh, learnt their political trade under, I guess, his dominant era. Mm. And and it's interesting that that he, that even saying that that he you know that I'm the most conservative leader the Liberal Party's ever had was said like it was a good thing. It wouldn't be a good thing to declare at the moment. So it's not just that it was true; it was also that it was seen as an advantage for him to actually say it. Well, it was also well, it was when he said it for the first time in the mid '80s. It was a really controversial thing for him to say. He was he was making a a bold statement about his politics relative yeah. to what had gone 
before. And um, I mean, I mean, on one level, we've just reached the end of the neoliberal policy paradigm. It is exhausted, you know, and we're, and we are now currently working out what the new one looks like. And it will run for a while, and eventually, it will become exhausted because society changes. I mean, I think what is one of the more interesting things that came out of the post-election washout, which no one paid attention to, was Scott Morrison saying that he thought that the that the that basically the current coalition should rename itself the LNP and that a moderate party should form separately and effectively that they should work in coalition like that, like as two formal parties, a bit like the Nationals and the Liberal Party does now. And and I mean, if the Liberal Party can't adapt, that is the most logical thing that will happen. We'll just have a more complex multi-party system. It's, you know, it, it might be the case that neither the Liberal Party or the Labor Party can regularly return majority government and that the Labor Party will, you know, I know because this might terrify you or, or irritate oh, really? you, have to form coalition with the Greens and, no, and the same fine. on the right. <laughs> that's fine. <laughs> that's fine. Um, and that's really the reality. And we go back to that point around uh, the impact that, you know, the, the, the end of that paradigm. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. That we've been discussing is 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 going to have, which is akin to the industrial revolution. Yeah, yeah, you're going to have moderates split away from the coalition. You're going to have Labor increasingly relying on other left wing and um, political parties to form coalition, and we are seeing that. Like, I mean, the major party vote, no matter where we are, is is on the slide, and um, and it, and there's there's a growing uh, growing appetite for something different and that we've not seen the end of it yet yes but it will be interesting if 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 uh, you know we were talking before about wealth eventually transferring from this generation that that holds it to 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 its to its next generation whether that changes things and one wonders whether um stability itself might become a commodity that someone is able to sell down the track once we mm. go through a period where there is this kind of balkanization of the political parties we get you know more of them and 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 a period of instability and you know governments perhaps not serving out full terms because uh, because majorities disintegrate and then then the issue of who can actually put together a stable majority uh, might become itself uh, a new thing to to market. Uh, either way, the Liberal Party needs to be doing some real time adjustment, or else it's going to be going out the back door. That that seems to be what the numbers are suggesting. And the question is, it's not whether they cannot change, whether it cannot change, it's whether it will not change. Yep. And uh, and there's no uh, evidence of that at the moment. That's right. And history will tell us that uh, when political movements don't change with the times, um, the electorate will will sort it out for them. Yeah, that's right. They'll do that work for them. Cos Samaris, it's been terrific talking to you this morning. Thanks for coming on Democracy Sausage. I hope we can talk to you again at some time. Absolutely. No problem. Thank you. 
Thanks, Maria. Always good to have your thoughts, of course. And um, that's Democracy Sausage for us for this week. Bye for now. Bye. Bye.